you have a Bible, I hope that you do, please turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel, we look at chapter 13 this morning, and we are, Lord willing, going to make it all the way through the entire chapter, so it's a little bit of a lengthy chapter, so keep that in mind, as I, I am going to ask you, as I always do, to physically, to stand with me, if you're physically able to honor the reading of God's holy and written word, we'll read all 39 verses together. As we look at this morning the destructive power of lust in Deuteronomy, or I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Second Samuel, I don't know why I've got Deuteronomy on the brain this morning, but 2 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 39. Hear the word of the Lord that's given to you and I this morning. And it came to pass after this that Absalom. The son of David had a fair sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very subtle or crafty man. And he said to him, Why are you, being the king's son, lean from day to day? Uh, Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said to him, Lay down on your bed and make yourself sick. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, I pray you, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat, food, and dress the meat or prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it at her hand. So Amnon lay down and made himself sick, and when the king was come to see him, Amnon said to the king, I pray you let Tamar, my sister, come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat at her hand. And then David said, then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go now to your brother Amnon's house and dress him meat, or prepare him food. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was laid down, and she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and did bake the cakes. And so, and she took a pan and poured them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, have all the men go out from me. And they, they went out every man from him. And Amnon said to Tamar, bring the meat into the chamber that I may eat, in, eat of it, eat of your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. And when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, no. My brother, do not force me, for no such thing as ought to be done in Israel. Do not do this folly. And I, where shall I cause my shame to go? And as for you, you shall be as one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray you, ask to the king, or speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not listen, hearken, or listen to her voice. But being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he had hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. And she said to him, There is no cause. This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not hearken or listen to her. And then he called his servant that ministered to him and said, Put uh, put now this woman out from me and bolted the door after her. 
And she had a garment of diverse colors, or various colors, upon her. From, for, su- for with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled. Then his servant brought her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and rent or tore her garment of diverse or various colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went out crying. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But hold now your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass that after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is beside Ephraim, and Absalom invited all of the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold now, your servant, his sheep shearers, let the king, I beseech you, and his servants go with your servant. And the king said to Absalom, Nay, my son, let, not, let us not all go uh, now go, lest we be chargeable to you, or a burden to you. And he pressed him, however he would not go, but blessed him. Then said Absalom, If not, I pray you, let, let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should, I, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him, that he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Mark you now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, smite Amnon, then kill him. Fear not, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and every man got him up upon his mule and fled. And it came to pass while they were in the way, what tidings came to David, saying, Absalom has slain all the king's sons, and there is not one of them left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all of his servants stood by with their clothes torn or rent. And Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, answered and and said, Let not my lord suppose that they have slain all of the young men, the king's sons. For Amnon only is dead, for by the appointment of Absalom this had to be determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king take the thing to his heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon only is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man that kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there came many people by the way of the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons come, as your servant said, so it is. And it came to pass, as soon as he had made an end of speaking, that, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all the servants wept very sore, very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of uh, Amihud, king of Gesher. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Gesher and was there three years. And the soul of King David longed to go forth to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing that he was dead. Let's pray. Father, your word has been set before us now. May you give us wisdom and understanding. Help us to see what is contained within these pages, the absolute travesty and the tragedy and the wickedness of sin that it brings upon our lives and others' lives. So help us, we pray, to look to this text and see ultimately how it points us to Christ and the hope that he provides us 
in, uh, in, in, him, in him alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So, it appears that judgment has finally come. As we've read our text this morning, as we've read, as we've looked, we now see the words of the prophet Nathan, that Nathan prophesied all the way back in chapter 12 for David's sins in chapter 11 for killing Uriah the Hittite are now coming to pass that death would never depart from David's home. Death has come, David has found, it has, violence has, has come to the house of David and David will now pay with his second of the three sons for what he has done. He paid with the life of his son, his first son by Bathsheba. He pays with the life of Amnon now. And he will pave with the life of Absalom in just a few chapters. But God's absolute sovereignty, let's not be mistaken, his absolute sovereignty in no way mitigates our responsibility. We have much to learn in this chapter about several things. We have much to learn about the, the sin of unchecked lust and the power of hatred as it erupts into vengeance. We have probably the most intriguing character and the most conniving schemer in Jonadab and in Absalom. We have probably the most, one of the most wicked acts that have happened in the, in the rape of Tamar that has happened in Israel since the kingdom united under David and even under Saul. This has not been heard of since all the way back in the book of Jude. I'm sorry, in Judges. Jude, it's the New Testament. Judges. There's wickedness that is running amok here. We have the consequences of sin. We have lust being defined for us versus love. We have anger, hatred, vengeance. We have deception and intrigue, failure to discipline and administer justice and separation and lack of reconciliation, all of these things are clearly laid before us in our text this morning. Who would follow David to the throne, right? It's a very important question, and Amnon was certainly in, in line of succession. He was in successive, the successor's line, but Solomon was recognized prophetically as the one who would be, who was especially beloved by the Lord and the complexity of this entire situation because of sin and deception and selfish ambition and rivalry and vengeance and all of this plays into the sovereignty and the sovereign plan of God. None of this takes God by surprise. None of this is shocking to God. Right? God doesn't say, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do now. No, no. Even the, but yet, despite God being absolute sovereign and all of this working to further his plans, right, at the end of the day, Jonadab, David, Amnon, and Absalom are all responsible for their own sins and their own wickedness. So, let's look at the text. I want to see, I want to show you a couple of realities about the destructive power of unchecked lust. The destructive power of, of unchecked lust. Or we could also say the judgment on David's royal house 
but uh, I think uh, for our purposes, the destructive power of lust certainly fits the bill. Let's look first in verses 1 through 14 here in Second Samuel chapter 13. And we see here in verses 1 and 2 that the, what is what I would call fanning the flames of lust that's taking place here. We have a conversation. We have a conversation between Amnon and, 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 and Jonadab. We have, the, we have a conversation here in the, verse, the first 14 verses, but here in verses 1 and 2, we have a, uh, an opining of a, of a, of for a relationship that is, that, is, that is wrong and that is sinful, that has been forbidden by Mosaic law, by God himself through the law. This relationship was forbidden by God. This was not to have been done. And so we have this man who is already finding himself on the wrong side by desiring a relationship that is wicked and wrong, that is forbidden by God's law. And yet, not only that, but we have him not only, not only desiring this relationship, but willing to do whatever is necessary to complete his task of conquering Tamar. And so we have the, the fanning of the flames here, and, and we, we have these vulgar, these disgusting players that are, that are left for us. And so in the first, in the first place, in first position, we have, we have the, the unchecked lust, right, in Amnon, right? We have this, this, this Amnon who was, who was uh, in the line and succession of King David who was actively willing to do whatever, even breaking the law of God to have his sister, his step, or his half-sister, but still his sister Tamar, the target being unaware of all of this, being beautiful young Tamar. Um, Absalom, it even says that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, right? Um, and, and Amnon and Tamar, we cannot forget, were David's children by Ahinoam. Uh, and then and Mayaka, um, if I'm pronouncing that right, right, respectfully. And so these were these were by two different mothers, but same father. But then we have within all of this the wickedness of lust that's put on display for us, don't we? You say, well, what do you mean? Well, in chapter two, what does he say? And Amnon was so frustrated, or Amnon, he was frustrated, right, because of his sister Tamar, that that literally he made himself sick from being in in love with her. And to the contrary, then, we have a virtuous young lady who was a virgin, who was the half-sister of Amnon, right? And we're told that Amnon was willing to do anything to get to her, right? It seems clear that she, in contrast to her half-brother here, was virtuous. She was virtuous. He was vulgar. He was wicked. He was vile. He He was wicked in his desires, unchecked, untamed desires, not brought underneath the law of God. God had said no, Amnon said, I don't care. And brothers and sisters, we must be very careful in our own approach as we approach God's word, that as you and I approach the word of God, that we do not have the same idea or the same mindset of Amnon who says, I don't care what God's word says. Because in truth, that's not the heart of a true believer. The heart of a true believer loves the Word of God. They desire to obey the Word of God. They desire to follow the Word of God. They desire to have their hearts and their their affections transformed and changed by the power of God as they lay their lives down to the obedience to God and His Word. And yet here we have Amnon 
and Jonadab in verse 3, who we find scheming in verses 3 through 5, don't we? They're scheming in order to, to, to take this to the next level. He just doesn't desire this, but desire, as we're told in James, often gives birth to, to, to lust. And then when lust is given birth, right, it gives way to sin, and sin ultimately leads to death. This is put on the display for us here with, with Amnon and Jonadab. And it's an amazing reality that Jonadab is a, is a devious counselor here in verse 3. We're told that he was a very shrewd man, a very subtle man, a very crafty person. Right? He, he knew how to get things done. Uh, he, he was a good politician right? because he knew how to get things done. He knew how to go, during, go down certain paths or pull on certain ropes or certain chains or, or call in a favor, so to speak, in order to get things done. And here, uh, Jonadab is a close friend with Amnon. And he, he says, uh, the text even says that it was his friend. But look what kind of friendship Amnon cultivated. Amnon, in his absolute disregard for the word of God, ends up cultivating a friendship and other friendships with those who also do what? Disregard the word of God. This is why Paul is very clear in Corinthians that, 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 that we are to be very careful who we choose because, because our friends can very much corrupt us. And we need to be careful because who we have as our friends are more than likely they are reflections of who we are as people. And so Amnon cultivates this, has this friend, this, this, this cousin, uh, Jonadab, who, who, is very cal- who is very cultivated in his, his, his very scheming. He's a very wise, crafty person. And he, he calls on Amnon. He says, tell me your trouble. I can help fix it. And so Amnon, being a man who doesn't care about God's word, he does exactly what he, what he, what he can do to, to, to lay his heart before his friend Jonadab, who also doesn't care for God's word. It's interesting that this man, was Jonadab, was politically motivated in all of this. He was politically motivated. And we'll see later where Jonadab actually has transpired with Absalom. So is Jonadab really a friend with Amnon, or is he conspiring with Absalom even at this point, knowing that Amnon is in line to become king to press this issue so that Amnon will be removed from succession and Absalom becomes the successor? The text doesn't answer that question, but I do think is an interesting question as we examine the text. But nonetheless, Jonadab is devious. He's politically connected and politically motivated. He makes this inquiry and he's told what's going on with Amnon. Amnon says, I'm just in love with my half-sister, Tamar, right? And Jonadab says, well, here's the plan I've got for you. Lie on your bed, pretend to be ill, and when your father comes to see you to find out if you're okay, just say to him, you know what? Can my sister come and make me food, right? Can, can Tamar come and make me food? It's a wicked plot. It's a wicked plot that's been hatched. Well, we also see where not only do they hatch this plot, but in verses 6 through 10, they execute the plot because they do exactly that, don't they? They do exactly what uh, Jonadab has given to uh, the, the plan that Jonadab has hatched. 
right? And so they execute the plan step by step. The, the scriptures walk us verse by verse. We walk through the plan, right? In verse 6, Amnon lays down on his bed. His father comes to see him. He asks for his sister Tamar. Tamar is sent to him by David, unassuming, right? David didn't know. Tamar didn't know, right? So David and Tamar both have no, no, uh, uh, no blame in this. But she is nonetheless, in verses 7 and 8, placed in grave danger. So much so that in verses 9 and 10, we're even told, right? What's the old saying? Come into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. Well, in this one, it's come into my chamber, said the spider to the fly. And so we have this wicked, vile man, Amnon, executing this plan down to its last moment. And she comes in unassuming, he full well knowing what he is going to do. He brings her into his chamber, and we have the rest of this unfolding, tragic, wicked story. He refuses, in verses 11 through 14, to take no for an answer. Right? He is desperately trying to get her to consent. He gives her this wicked proposition, hey, sleep with me, lie with me, my sister. Right? She attempts to resist. Right, she tried. I mean, if as you look through the text, you'll see a couple different things she's tried. She first tries logic, right? She says, "No, no, 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 no. Let's not let's not do this." And then she tries, right? Because she answered him, "You know, don't don't do this. You're my brother. Don't do this, right? Half brother, but still brother." And then she appeals to his conscience, his sense of right and wrong, by saying, "Hey, you know what?" Uh, this is a foolish thing, and no fool does these types of things in Israel. And so you don't want to be a fool, do you? And then he appeals, she appeals to personal standards of righteousness. Don't do this wicked, disgraceful thing. She appeals to the moral law of God. And she then goes on and says, there's going to be consequences for both of us, Amnon, if you, if you force this. She says, where can I go to get rid of my reproach? Where can I go to get rid of my shame? Now, this sounds strange to me because later you'll find, or strange to us, I know, because we're in Western society. But you have to remember that this unfolds within a, gray, within a, a shame culture, right? Uh, and so, um, yes, rape is bad, but it's not as bad as ultimately the shame of kicking her out that he ultimately does. And so um, we, we, we are dealing with a different type of culture at this point where it seems strange to us with Western ears to say, why in the world would she say this? But in reality, we have to remember that she exists as a woman in a in a a. a, a uh, an honor and shame society. And she says, where can I go to get rid of my reproach? And Amnon, where can you go to not look like an absolute fool and pay the price? And then she tries to be as crafty as Amnon. She says, go speak to the king. He'll give me in marriage. Now, in reality, this was not the case because David would not have consented to this relationship because God's law would not consent to this relationship. And it seems that Amnon knows God's word and God's law well enough to know, no, this is not the case. Otherwise, why wouldn't he have already gone and asked the king for, merit, for permission to marry her? But he knows that God's law forbids it. 
And so he assaults her violently. He would not listen to her, and he assaults her. And then the second reality is we have the response of unchecked lust. And that response is hatred and rage. After he violates her, after he finishes with her, after he rapes her, Amnon does something even more wicked in an honor and shame society, and he kicks her out. He kicks her out. Now, there are still places where this would play itself out, right? You, you have cultures, the cultures that I grew up in, in eastern Kentucky, in the Appalachia, right, uh, where still a lot of honor, shame going on there, right? There's a lot of things going on. So if you wrong someone, you make it right. You, you repair the dishonor that you've brought. Uh, and so, but by and large for us in the West, that's still just a, a div- different way of thinking. And so he responds in rage. He responds in rage. And the question is, is he really angry at Tamar? The answer is ultimately no. He has given into his sin. His sin has not ultimately satisfied him. And now he does what only he could do. The person that he once loved the most is now the person that he now hates and rejects the most. This hatred, as we're told in verse 15, is more intense than the love that he had for her, right? Now, notice this. In verse 22, we're told that Absalom ends up hating Amnon. And don't miss this. These are not the same words. These are not the same words. I mean, they, they, ultimately, they, they, they come to the same conclusions, but they're not the same words. God inspired two different words to be used here. One, one is for just, uh, just, just absolute loathing of one. The other has to do with willing to do absolute malice to the other one. And Absalom has the idea of willingness to do absolute malice for vengeance, not justice, vengeance. His hatred is different from Amnon's, though still hatred nonetheless. And so Amnon tells her to arise and be gone. But she does something. And again, to us, this seems strange in Western culture. But nonetheless, she does this because she does several things before she leaves. One, she calls out his sin. He says, okay, you've already done this. Well, now what you're willing to do is even more evil to me. And she rebukes him for his sin. No, I'm not leaving because of what you've done for me. You have sinned against me. And yet Absalom still is not willing to hear the word of God. Absalom is still not willing to hear, Amnon is still not willing to hear the word of God. It's a hard-hearted rejection on his part here where he says, put this woman out. He doesn't even call her by name. He doesn't even call her by name. He doesn't even call Tamar by her name. He was calling her by her name previously. Now we see the absolute hatred and revulsion in his heart, right? And, and that, that he, is, he who once was so attracted to her is now revulsed by her and repulsed by her that he commands his servant to kick him out. Now understand Amnon, at this point, is not the only one to blame. You have a lot of other players in this. You have Jonadab, you have Amnon, you have the servants who knew what was going on, could hear what was going on, even though he sent them out. They would not have gone far from him. The servant now who kicks her out, all of these have a part to play in the wickedness of what happened to Tamar. 
And yet Dave, and yet Amnon has a hard-hearted rejection, kicks her out. And then we have unmade, uh, just uh, this Tamar grieving and mourning over what had happened to her. We, it's said that she had a, a beautiful uh, 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 robe on full of many covers, colors, almost like Joseph, right? Remember Joseph in the coat of many colors? Almost like that. But because she had been violated, she now rips it, puts dust on her head, and she's found in grief and in mourning. And, and here's the interesting thing about what we find in verses 20 and verse 22 of our text, is we do have anger and hatred right, against what has happened to Tamar. But there are anger and hatred that's rooted in wrong motives. Because look with me here in verse 20. Look what it says here in verse 20 and then in verse 22. It says, And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your, own, your peace. My sister, he is your brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Now listen to verse 22. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Amnon, as well as when David hears of this and becomes angry, and all of the rest of the family has every right to, fear, to, hear, to be absolutely angry for what's happened. Absolute anger. Absolute right. But Absalom's motives were rooted in his own. Because he says, don't say nothing. Just let it be. Just let it be. Don't say anything. Just hold your peace. Why? Well, I think there's a couple reasons why. Ultimately, the ultimate reason, I think, why is that he was politically motivated. And I want to be clear on this because there's immediate damage control, right? Absalom was wrong, though, to tell his sister Tamar to be quiet and not to take this to heart. This was wrong. He minimized the significance of the terrible crime that happened against her. Now, granted, she was taken care of in his household for the rest of her life and throughout the rest of her life, not just in his household, but also ultimately in King David's household and then Solomon's household. But she was never invited to tell the truth. And ultimately, she was left desolate, the text tells us here, she was alive on the outside, but this experience had crushed her. It had crushed her to the point that she was simply like a shell. There is righteous anger, though, that happens when David hears of this, when, when Absalom hears of this, right, righteously, right? But ultimately, what ends up happening with Absalom? Well, he plots to kill Amnon. He says, well, you know what? I'm just going to do this. I'm going to kill my brother. I'm going to kill him because he's done this. Oh, and by the way, it has nothing to do with the fact that if I kill him and dispatch him, I will be next in line. Right? It has nothing to do with that. But he's righteously angry, but with a wicked hatred. But in all of this, we see the cascading tragedy of unchecked lust, because lust now isn't just the lust between, between Amnon and Tamar, right? The, the, the lust that Amnon had for Tamar, 
but it's now the lust for vengeance and revenge that Absalom will now exact upon his brother. This man is so ruthless. This man is so cunning and conniving. He, he would do well, do well in pol- politics just in general today because he waits two full years to plot to, ha- to hatch the plot and then ultimately to execute this plan to kill his brother. But in all of this, there's a cascading tragedy for this vengeance that is paid by all players. Because even though there's a delayed response, he spends years plotting how he's going to kill his brother until the right moment. And then to cover himself when it comes to the time, when he finally fi- figures out how he's going to do this, he, he does something, he says, hey, dad, why don't you come down? And then he says, King David says, no, 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 because if I come down, there's going to be a whole entourage with me, and I, I, I just, just not going to be enough, and I don't want to burden you, son, so I thank you, but no. And then Absalom says, well, if you're not going to go, dad, how about you just send my good buddy and my brother Amnon with me? Now, we know David knew something was happening because David balks at this statement. He says, why should I send Amnon with you, Absalom? But Absalom prevails in his persuasion to his king, to his father. And ultimately, we see the murder plot hatched out in verses 28 through 29, don't we, here? We find Absalom's murder instructions. He says to his servants, look, the when I, when I tell you you're going to kill my brother. Now, listen, guys, I know that you're thinking I'm going to throw you under the bus, but listen, it's going to fall on me, okay? Now, I know that's a, a paraphrased version of what he says, but, but that's literally what he says. He says, listen, I'm the one telling you this. It's not going to fall on you guys. It's going to come back on me. So you just do what I tell you to do, and then you can say I was just following orders. And that's exactly what they do. And, uh, and, and they, 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 they slaughter after he is drunk, cannot defend himself, they kill Amnon. They kill him. And it's a tale, this entire thing, this, this entire reality, this assassination that takes place is a, is, a, is, is, a, it is a wicked plot that has been hatched. It tells us not only Amnon's heart, but it also tells us Absalom's heart. Far from being the, the, the king's they, that David was, they would make far lesser kings because their hearts were not set on serving God. Their hearts were set upon serving their own selves and their own self-interests. So the assassination takes place. The king's sons flee in verse 29. And then we have this explanation and assurance from this guy by the name of Jonadab. Again, here he is, this plotter, the schemer. Was he really friends with Amnon? We, we don't know. I mean, after all, wouldn't, shouldn't he, if he was really his friend, have told him, hey, uh, I think they're going to kill you if you go with them, right? But he doesn't do that. And there's a tale of total des- des- devastation. There's a picture of, of abject mourning then with David. But then Jonadab comes up and he reassures him, oh, no, 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 king, listen to me. Not all your sons have died, only Amnon. Amnon alone has been killed. And there's a prediction here, right? That's an amazing reality. It almost seems as if 
Jonadab had a picture of Absalom's future political, political future and wanted to be a part of that. But then ultimately comes the corroborating evidence in the report that all the sons haven't died, but they have. And the morning of the death of Amnon that takes place here. But let me ask you a question. Where was David's weeping over what happened to Tamar? Oh, he was angry. But where was David's weeping over his, over his daughter and what had happened to her? Where was David's insistence on justice for what had happened to Tamar? By, by Mosaic law, by Mosaic law, because Tamar called out and because Tamar was raped, the Bryce pride either could have been paid or justice could have ultimately been served with the insistence of David on the life of his son being forfeited. But David insists on neither. David remains silent in the face of injustice. Now, my argument certainly would be, I think, from the text, at least from, the, from, the, from, the, uh, from what happened previously in 11 and 12 and now 13, David has compromised himself because he himself has killed a man. He himself has committed adultery. He himself has done lots of things here that have, that have made him compromised in the eyes of the people and among his own politicians. And, and he, he himself knows that. And so I think David ultimately doesn't insist on this because he says, well, look what I did. What can I say? The aftermath is just as devastating, though, because Absalom is flees and there's aftermath. He flees to the city of refuge. He goes to Talmai, the son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. And lest you say, okay, no big deal. Who is he fleeing to, guys? His grandfather. That's who he flees to. His grandfather. He was the son of a Syrian princess. And that's who Absalom flees to. The little Syrian country east of the Galilee in the middle of David's sphere of his empire. David didn't conquer it. He simply married into it. And so during this three years of, of exile, David, instead of making anything right, like all good proud fathers, just simply says, it is what it is. It is what it is. So let me ask you a question. How do we apply this? More or less, how do we see Jesus in any of this? Is Jesus in any of this? Well, as in every story in the Old Testament, every, every, old story, every Old Testament story is meant to point us ultimately to Christ. It is, it is, we are told of Jesus, his absolute difference in being the king who will execute justice. He is the better, good and better king than David who insists on justice who will repay unrighteousness, who will vindicate his people, who has paid, who has paid for the sins of his people. And he also is the king who will right the wrongs committed against his people. Jesus is the good and better king who, unlike David, was never compromised, was sinless in every aspect of his living, 
was absolutely sinless. He never sinned. He never desired to sin. He never thought to sin. He was sinless from beginning to end. And he, as the good and better king, has every right and the ability to execute righteous judgment against those who rebel against his word. Jesus is the good and better king who ultimately creates a better kingdom that is not filled with corruption, but will, we will one day see fully before us. It is a place of perfection, Christ ruling and reigning himself from earth. Whereas Christ, ultimately, Christ died for sinners. It is Jesus Christ who died for sinners like Amnon and Absalom and David and you and I and all who will repent and believe the gospel. Christ's death is sufficient to save rapists and murderers, liars and thieves, corrupt judges and kings. He is the one who is able to forgive and to cleanse every sin. But how does this ultimately apply to us? Well, first and foremost, brothers and sisters, let me say this to you. I know that this story requires a lot of more than just PG. This is a far more than a PG story, but yet it does highlight the reality that parental guidance is absolutely necessary in teaching our children the word of God and the law of God, the commands of God. They need to know the word. Certainly, Amnon knew the law, knew the word of God. They knew the commandments of God and yet refused to obey them. But David could not be faulted for not having taught his son the word of God. Amnon ultimately refused and rejected the command and the, the the counsel of the word of God, but yet David was faithful to give his son the word of God. Christians, we need to be faithful as parents and as grandparents to give our children and our grandchildren the word of God. They need to know the word of God. They need to be taught. They need to be trained in the word. They need to be, they, they need to, they, we need to have devotions with or worship, family worship with them. We need to be part of teaching and getting God's truths into their hearts. Christian, as believers, we need to also protect the innocent. We need to protect the innocent. We need to speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. We cannot afford to be like Absalom or David, or we cannot afford to be like the servants who knew what was going on and said nothing. We must speak for those who do not have a voice. We must speak for the least of these. This has been, honestly, the way that we have been throughout our history as Christians. We have always sought, as God's people, to promote good and righteous laws that protect the innocent. But we must also insist, as God's people, that the wicked be punished. That the wicked be punished. After all, this is the very foundation of God. Good human government. Romans tells us, Romans 13 tells us that we are to obey those who are over us in the Lord. But what is the purpose of them being over us? It is this, that they 
punish the evildoers and reward the good. And if a government does not do that, if that government has stopped doing that, it has shed its legitimacy. We must also learn from the past. We must learn from the past. What do I mean by that? Well, we should certainly learn from Tamar. We should certainly learn from Tamar's example, or from, from the example that we read here about Amnon and Tamar and all of this, and about the importance of, 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 of how we are to, as God's people, call for, call for the, the protection of innocence and the innocent, and innocent lives and punishment of the wicked. We must learn, though, right? It's, it's always it's, it's been said that those who don't remember the past will be doomed to, to, to repeat it in the future. But I say, but listen, I think it's worse than that. It's worse than that. Those who don't remember the past will not only repeat it, but they will repeat it with even far more increasing wickedness and increasing destruction. And I think ultimately, this points us one place. Christian, this is why we are called to preach the gospel. We are called to call sinners to faith in Christ. Because the hope of the nations is the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we want to see our nation repent, if we want to see nations, plural, repent in throughout the world, the only hope they have is for them to hear the gospel, to have their lives and minds and families transformed by the gospel, and that changes their behavior. We must reject as believers the flesh and flee to Christ in faith. We must preach Jesus, calling sinners to repent of their sin and flee to Christ in faith, by grace, in Christ alone. The hope of the nations is in the good news of Jesus Christ. We as God's people must be faithful to preach the gospel. Now, certainly, certainly we can't control men and women's response to the gospel. That's, that's, between, that's for God to do. That's for God to work as the gospel is preached. However, believer, we must preach the gospel. We must allow the gospel to transform people. And this is part of what Jesus told us to do in Matthew chapter 28, to go into all the nations Making, not just preaching the gospel, he doesn't just say preach the gospel, but make disciples. And so we make disciples of the nations by teaching them the word of God, by proclaiming the gospel. And those who repent and believe, then we teach them what it means to live as believers. Evangelism and discipleship are not two separate things. They are one thing. Making disciples of all nations. Brothers and sisters, we live in a nation that is in need of us to make disciples. We live in a nation. We live among a world that is filled with nations that are in need of the gospel to go forward for the life of, 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 uh, that is pre preached in the gospel to take hold in the nations and to convert them to Christ. We say, well, we're living in the end times. Okay, we've been living in the end times since Jesus went back to heaven. The apostles didn't fail to preach the gospel we, didn't, we can't fail to preach the gospel to sinners. Who knows what God will do? Who knows what God may do? God may, in fact, be merciful to 
our, to us and to, our na- to the nations around us as we, the gospel is preached, lives are transformed, and the nations are discipled for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray, to be faithful. To be faithful to the word of God, to be faithful to submit to the word of God, to obey the word of God, to love the word of God, to to be zealous for making disciples among the nations that Christ may be proclaimed, that Christ may be honored, that Christ may be proclaimed as the hope of the nations. That we would again, call sinners to bow the knee to King Jesus and that we would see revival and renewal in this nation, but not just our nation, but the nations among the world, that they may repent and hear the gospel so that, so that, so that Iran and, and, and Afghanistan and China and, 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 and Saudi Arabia and all of these nations who resist the gospel may be converted to Christ. We pray for you to work and move in a mighty way. And we pray this in Jesus' name.